Hello again. This is episode two of season two of the APG podcast, where we try to figure out how to put people back into planning. My name is Bogdana Butnar. I'm a strategy director and the current host of the podcast. There's been a bit of a hiatus between episode one and this one. Apologies about that. It's getting close to summer holidays, so people are very hard to pit down. But we have a good one for you. I sat down to speak to Nick Chater. Nick Chater is Professor of Behavioral Science at Warwick Business School, where his work focuses on cognitive and behavioral sciences, especially reasoning, decision-making, and language. Nick joined Warwick Business School after holding chairs in psychology at Warwick and UCL. He has over 200 publications, has won four national awards for psychological research, and has served as associate editor for the journals Cognitive Science, Psychological Review, and Psychological Science. He was elected a Fellow of the Cognitive Science Society in 2010 and a Fellow of the British Academy in 2012. In early 2019, Nick's book, The Mind is Flat, is published by Penguin. In it, Chater argues that there is no subconscious, no inner oracle, and we can't really explain who we are and why we do the things we do. Hope you enjoy it. Here is Nick Chater. Hello, I am here talking to Nick Chater. Nick, hello and welcome to the APG podcast. Hello, Bogdana. Thanks for being on the podcast. Now, you're not a stranger to the APG crowd. You've been one of the keynote speakers at last year's APG conference. But for those listening who are not in the room, can you please give us an intro into um, the kind of work that you do and the kind of research that you do? So my main interest is um, the basic principles of the mind, so how we are able to construct a representation of the world around us, um, how we reason, how we use language. But I'm also very interested in how those basic insights about how the mind works apply to practical situations, how they apply to business, government policy, uh, issues like uh, globally important issues like climate change. So I'm somebody who sees the foundational questions in psychology as having direct impact on everyday life, policy um, and business. And I think that's one of the reasons we were very keen to speak to you, because obviously your most recent project is a book called The Mind is Flat, that when a lot of us read uh, in, the, in the planning profession thought, wow, this is, has imp- very important implications on the kind of work that we do. But um, again, for those who haven't gotten to the book, can you please give us a, a short intro into what the main thesis of the book is? Yes, the idea of the mind is being flat is to contrast with the intuition that I think we often have that underneath the superficial flow of conscious experience is a simultaneously an, a, a world of um, subconscious, unconscious thinking. And the idea that those thoughts are a bit like the conscious thoughts we have, but somehow un- inaccessible to us. And that we have all kinds of deep um, meanings, understandings, um, values to which we have no conscious access. And I want to suggest instead that the conscious flow of experience, the conscious organisation of the world, is that these are the only thoughts we have. In fact, our brain is only really able to focus to a good approximation on one thing at a time. So the thing I'm consciously focusing on is pretty much much all my brain is able to do. But what we are also good at, and in fact astoundingly impressive at, is mental improvisation. So we're able to conjure up extremely detailed and uh, convincing sounding reasons for our behaviours, explanations of our values, um, explanations of our internal contradictions and how to resolve them, 
endless um, complexity can be generated when you ask me about my behavior, who I am, why I do the things I do. I can generate, uh, I can create a character, I can create a story ex extremely impressively and, and fast. And the illusion that I want to dispel in the mind is flat is the thought that that was there all along. It was just lurking inside me and uh, I've just excavated some of it. Uh, and of course, there's far more that I, um, I haven't yet excavated. The whole idea that sort of inside us there's this enormous richness from which the occasional conscious thought bubbles up, I think, is a fundamental mistake. We're much more creative, much more improvisational than, than we imagine. So we're a bit more like improvisational actors. So if you're improvising a part, you're told to play the, the role of a, a detective in a, uh, an improvised drama um, uh, exercise, then you'll suddenly find yourself talking about your backstory, how you became a detective, what the, uh, what the reasons are you believe this, this, this or that person to be the culprit. And this is stuff you've never thought about before. You're improvising it, you're making it up. And in that case, it's obvious that you're not um, sort of pulling all these uh, improvisations out of some uh, kind of uh, fixed, um, fixed mind because it's a made-up character. You're making them up in the moment. And I think we're much more making up ourselves than we realise. We're inventing our own characters moment by moment. I mean, the book has been called, has been described as providing a radical reinterpretation of how the mind works. Can you give me a bit of context as to why is this considered such a radical um, idea? How, what's the background? What's the tradition that this book builds on? Yeah, so, I mean, I suppose one um, place to start is to think about the tradition that it, it that departs from, that it breaks away from. So I suppose that tradition would be um, one in which we think of the mind as containing um, beliefs and values, some of which are conscious and some of which are not, but which are relatively stable. So from this point of view, you might give people a, a personality test or uh, a test of their, to, to establish their attitudes or indeed their preferences about, um, for example, products. And you're, you think what you're doing there is you're tapping into people's underlying preferences, values, beliefs and so on. So you're, you think that what, what there's, there's some underlying truth lurking in my brain um, about the question of you know, what my moral attitudes are, what my attitudes to um, other social groups are, what my attitudes to different kinds of technology are. And the question is, well, what are these attitudes? Let me find them, let me get them out. And the mind is flat perspective would say, no, that's completely the wrong way to think about it. Um, people are much more create, created in the moment um, than, than that. So if you ask me a question, um, I will cook up an answer. So you ask me a question about, for example, a new product or proposition, I will find a way of uh, answering the question, but what I'm doing is I'm creating that at the very moment you're asking me. I'm not, it, just, it is improvisational acting, essentially. Um, now, that means that um, if you ask me again or you ask me in a different way, I may give you a different answer. In fact, I may give you a contradictory answer. Or, for example, if I'm asking, you ask me in a different social setting, um, so a setting in which um, I'm with my family versus at work versus um, in some religious context or in some completely different uh, uh, social circle, then my responses will be potentially different again. And the, the thought here is not that there's so, that the way we uh, think, think is um, varied just to play along with the people around us and the situation. That's an old idea. But the crucial idea is there is not one true um, real set of values or beliefs or attitudes which is lurking within us at all. It's always being constructed, it's always being made up. So I suppose an analogy that might be helpful is to think that if you imagine asking a poet 
um, to complete a line of poetry. So here's, here's the first bit, and you know, now, now write the rest of the poem. Um, or you're asking them to produce a poem uh, inspired by a particular situation or object. Once they've done that, we don't think, well, I guess that poem was in you already, I've just got it out. Um, and we tend to think that uh, normal human behaviour, our normal ways that we describe and think about the world, are not like poetry. They're just really much more boring. They're not creative at all. We just hunt around in our minds for our beliefs and we just fish them out and, and uh, sort of lay them, lay them before the world. But I think that's wrong. I think we're much more like poets than we imagine. Um, so if you ask me you know, what I think about Donald Trump, I'll give you something. Uh, if you ask me in a different context, I'll give you something else. And none of it will be terribly positive, I suspect. But, um, but by my views are something that I'm creating in the moment. Um, and they're not, they're, not, they're not sort of fixed attitudes within me. That's actually very interesting because, I mean, there's, there's a sense, however, that, or, or at least, I mean, in, in, in our industry, we do believe that there, there are some sort of past um, experiences or past uh, decisions that do influence the way you behave um, uh, towards something today. So, for instance, one of the things is that, that we, we tend to talk a lot about um, in, in marketing is predisposition. So this idea that you can create a predisposition to a brand um, and that predisposition will then somehow be elicited every time you're you're confronted with the 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 choice between one brand or the other. Well, what what do you think about that idea? About the fact that you can create some sort of past set of experiences that helps you make a different decision in the moment, in the present moment. Well, I do actually think there's a great deal of sense to that. So so the the, the mind is flat perspective is saying that we're we're improvising moment by moment in our behaviours and our actions. Um, but on the other hand, the way we do that, the reason, the reason we're not totally incoherent jumbles is that our, pr our present improvisations are always based on the, last, uh, the most similar uh, experiences that we've um, had in the past. So essentially, we're continually dealing with a continually uh, unexpected present by drawing on and making analogies and creating metaphors from past relevant experiences. So, for example, when I see a new um, visual image, um, if it's a, a piece of modern art, and I think, oh, I see inside that, I can see a, a boat or a face or, a, or an animal. Um, what I'm doing is I'm taking my experiences of real boats and faces and animals, and I'm projecting those into an image which may be very, very uh, complex and very uh, broken and very different from the, um, the, 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 uh, the real world objects that they bring to mind. So I'm a very, the brain is an incredibly creative metaphor machine but it's always interpreting the present image or the present thought in, on the basis of past thoughts. Now, I think a good, actually, a good analogy here is thinking about the way the law works, or at least in common law systems like the US and the UK, uh, large areas of the law work on the basis of precedent. So when you're deciding a new case, you as a judge have to think, well, what, what cases were similar to this? And then it's very important uh, question to work out which cases you think are really the same and which are really different and why and so on. But you're always referring backwards to past experiences. And here this notion of predisposition I think is, is a, it does actually have some traction. Because when I'm thinking about a brand or in a particular interaction, then what I will do is I will um, conjure up past interactions potentially with that brand and other things too. So it may well be that I can, um, you can, one can shape my future interactions with a brand by the past. A crucial proviso to that, though, is that this tends to, be a ver tends to be a very local process. So if you want to change my attitude to a brand in a very particular context, you've got to change my, um, my past experiences of that brand very likely in quite a similar context. 
So th this is what underpins, I think, the, the, um, the, the often remarked point that people have incredibly little trust in banks um, as institutions um, in the sense that they, they, they think of them as um, uh, you know, potentially uh, not working in their interests. Uh, and I might even think about that, that about my own bank. But when I actually speak to the person in the branch or, the, uh, or I interact on my um, app, I feel completely fine about it. I think you know, my, my view of my bank in the context of the app or the phone conversation is completely divorced or can be, can be completely divorced from my, my more general perspective. So that if you have tremendous brand damage to the bank as a big financial global institution, um, it may have very little effect on my day-to-day -day, um, app interactions. And I think this is very important that we don't think of brands as sort of single unitary things. I mean, the brain is a much more um, peaceable, piece by piece local um, machine than that. So when I'm thinking, how do I feel about, you know, do I trust my um, you know, transacting some money on my phone? Um, then what I'm going to be referring back to is, well, what do I normally do? Am I normally happy with this? Am I the kind of person who's done this in the past? I guess I am. It's always been fine. I'm just keeping going. So these, so the fact that the brand might have been damaged in some other way maybe makes no difference. And conversely, of course, if we change the brand in a positive way in one context, it may or may not leak across to others. That's actually very interesting because obviously what one of the things that is being talked about a lot today in, in the, the industry that I work in is this idea of uh, brand experience, which is kind of a holistic understanding of a brand's interactions with consumers throughout various situations. And there's, there's a belief that that can be controlled and somehow that by tweaking little bits of that experience, overall, the relationship with a brand can be improved. And I think what I'm, what I'm hearing you saying is that it's actually, it can actually differ significantly from one touch point to the other. You can, as you've explained, you can think that banks are crap in general, but you don't mind banking with an app uh, from your bank that actually gives you a positive experience. And overall, those two things might not actually have an effect on, on, on one another. Yes, I think that's right. So I, I don't think that people are necessarily barking up the wrong tree when they're trying to think about try, um, creating a, a kind of holistic brand. But that's something that is a really major challenge. Um, so it, people will not naturally um, view different kinds of touch points as connected. Um, and they will, they'll, 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 the, the, the natural reference point for app interactions with, 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 my, with one financial institution is going to be app interactions with another financial institution or maybe other stuff I do on my phone. Um, so it's quite hard, not necessarily impossible, but it's quite hard to get people to make the connection between uh, a, a, a one, one type of touch point and, and another or one touch point and um, some other broader um, way in which you're trying to influence the brand uh, through, through advertising or through you know, sponsorship or whatever it may be. Uh, I think these, these, these things require, I mean, they can be done, but, but it requires very carefully sort of seed putting in clues to, um, you know, across the brand so that people think, oh, it's this again. Yes, this is the right, the right thing I should be thinking about when I'm using this app is all that stuff that I know about my bank uh, rather than the, you know, the world of my phone and, and apps. It's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to do. So what you're, it's a, what you're trying to do really is to, is to encourage people to, to draw on a particular set of past experiences, which is the ones that are other brand-related past experiences, rather than rather than the opposite. And that's you know, with with clever 
uh, you know, with, 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 with clever attention, it may be possible to do that, but it's pretty, pretty difficult. And of course, it's not always a good thing, because if, the, um, if one part of the brand does um, get damaged in some way, it may be quite, quite useful that there's a certain degree of um, robustness. You, if the whole brand is a completely um, coherent unit, then it all stands or falls together. So a, a scandal, which may be completely um, extrinsic to all of the effort, marketing efforts and advertising efforts you're making, um, but I, I, I did just something completely, you know, completely uh, irrelevant um, from the point of view of the consumer. Even that might then be very damaging. So you might have some sort of um, you know, Me Too-like scandal, which may be very serious, but doesn't really affect my trust in my, you know, uh, trust in my um, app, use of my app. Um, so I think it's it's probably it's probably in general a good thing to be trying to to create harmonious integrated brands. It's it's going to be very hard. And it's not always um, a good, a good, uh, good thing to achieve. I'm uh, almost tempted to continue on this line of questioning because I think uh, a lot of the things that you're saying are, are going to probably be end, uh, end up in a lot of the presentations that I might be doing. But I want to pull it back to the the overall theme of the this uh, season of the podcast, which is which is people. Now, one thing that I'm curious about is if we were to talk about very specific ways in which in which what your book postulates. Um, might change the way we understand people. Can you tell me a couple of those specific ways um, and how, how maybe myths about motivation and reasoning uh, can be dispelled? Yes. So I think one, one key myth is that people have, as, as I was indicating before, some underlying hidden set of attitudes and beliefs which we can uncover somehow. So, for example, if we are thinking about launching a new product um, or thinking about the advertising around a new product, uh, it may seem to be that it must be the case that people have some kind of desire for this product or views about this product. I mean, just but we don't know what they are, and so with a bit of um, prodding and poking, we can um, we can establish what those are, and that should be the basis for our campaign. But I think people are much more, um, improv- as I say, improvisational and flexible than that. So it's not really the case that people have a fixed attitude to the say the iPad before there's an iPad. Um, it's not really the case that people have a positive or a negative attitude to the iPad. If you present the iPad in a variety of ways, with a variety of wrappers and descriptions, some people are going to think, well, that's completely pointless. I don't know why I need that. I've got a laptop already, or yeah, it's just a gigantic phone, or whatever it may be. So you'll get, you can, by presenting it in a particular way, you can get people to view it very negatively. By presenting it some other way, and saying, oh, well, a lot of the time when you're using a, a computer, of course, you don't need the keyboard because you're just viewing content. Well, how this is this wonderful, super light, small, uh, fairly cheap, high definition um, viewing platform, and then you know, people will have completely different perspective. Now, I think that the the it's rather like trying to persuade people, or see, or one asking the question, you know, which poems will people like, or which songs will they like. Uh, it's very natural to think that the answer is somehow within the people and sort of within the object. Um, you know, if only we looked closely at the people and the song and looked at them sort of, um, with great detail, we'd be able to work out who's going to like what. But once we realise that people are improvisational um, creators, they themselves will create a narrative and they will then transmit that narrative to other people and the narrative will build up and we'll all decide we love the iPad or we hate the iPad. Uh, but it's just simply not the case that that narrative kind of pre-exists. Um, so I think it's it's... So the first lesson would be it's something that that, that we should think of the, the, the process of trying to um, persuade people as something where we're trying to engage their um, creativity in a, in, a, in a way that is somewhat unpredictable, but also but, but essentially it's inviting them to 
be part of the creative story. We're not trying to tap into something that pre-exists within the person. We're not trying to hammer home a message that they may or may not like, but just sort of wedge it in their mind. We're trying to engage them in a kind of creative journey and encourage them to create a narrative which is a, a good narrative. But we don't really control that process very much. Um, and it's very a common thing that people often like products for reasons that were never dreamt of by the by the uh, creator of the product, um, and that's fine. And that's yeah, so, so that that sort of openness, that that uh, flexibility, um, is is just normal normal in human behaviour, um, and we should you know, we should we should embrace that. Um, now I think so. So I think there. I mean that doesn't mean, for example, that market research is pointless, but it certainly means it should only be a fairly sort of crude starting point because you know, the process of evolving uh, the way we're going to use a new product or service and the way we're going to think about it is something that has not happened before that, that, that product has been launched. So mere market research is never going to, um, we're not going to get, get, get you that. But also, it's also important to realise that um, just asking people uh, why they use a product, why they like it or what their attitudes are is simply inviting them to do some improvisation. Uh, they're not drawing on some ground truth they don't know either why they're um why, why they do, do or don't behave in a particular way why they um why, why they continually use one type of phone rather than another the uh, the general experience of all psychological experiments is that people are rationalizing they're making up the story retrospectively um, so i think we so we, we should assume that we should have very little trust in people's own explanations of their behavior so yes, to, to illustrate this um, phenomenon of rationalization, a, a nice example is to consider some very interesting work by uh, Petter Johansson, Lars Hall and their team in, at Lund University in Sweden. So what Petter and Lars have done is they've explored a strange phenomenon called choice blindness. Now what does this mean? What this means is that you give people a choice, they make a choice, and then you deviously trick them into thinking they made the opposite choice. And then you ask them to explain why they chose what they chose. Now, let's see, let's see this in action. So the classic study, uh, but there are so many others now, the classic study, which was uh, in science, the top science, scientific journal, uh, about 10 years ago, they gave people pairs of faces. And you had to say, which is your, which is your favorite face of these two faces? And the faces would be people who are roughly the same age, um, gender, reasonably similar looking, but, but very obviously distinct. So you'd look, people would be shown a pair of faces on cards. They'd say, I think on balance, I prefer the left face. Then they would be given the card with the left face. And mostly there'd be no trick. They would get the, be given the card. They would look at the card and they'd then explain why, um, why that face was the, their preferred face. But on about 10% of trials, a card trick, literal card trick by card magic was, was thrown in. And in the, using the card trick, the wrong face, the face that you did not choose would be given to you. And you'd be asked, well, why did you choose that, that face? Now, what you ought to say is, well, I didn't. That's not it. That's, the, that's a mistake. That's the, I meant the other face. But people very rarely do that. And we know, in fact, that they really don't notice because at the end of the experiment, um, Petra and Lars explained to people, by the way, we did some card magic on some people in this experiment. Not all of them, but some of them. Do you think we did card magic on you to fool you? No, they say. Uh, well, 75% of people say, no, 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 I wasn't tricked at all. So they haven't spotted the trick. So, here, so here's the interesting thing. I, I show you faces A and B. You say, I think A is my favourite. I then give you B. And now let's look at your explanation for why you chose B. And those explanations are just as fluent, just as rapid, just as lengthy, and generally just as convincing as the explanations where there's no trick performed. 
But of course, the explanation has got to be nonsense because the reason you chose B is non-existent because you chose A. But you don't, you, you don't even hesitate for a second. You just gently launch into explaining why you chose something, even though you didn't choose it. So to take another example, the, they also looked at um, uh, many other things, including uh, wonderfully jams. So here, uh, in, this, in this experiment, you're at a supermarket in Sweden. You are at a, 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 a testing table, some very variety of jams you can taste. You taste, um, say, raspberry. Uh, and strawberry, and you say, I think I, raspberry is my favourite. They're not labelled, they're just uh, unlabeled jams. You say, I, 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 yes, raspberry is my favourite. And so the experimenter says, well, let me give you some more of that jam, and you can explain why it's your favourite. And using a clever double-ended jam jar, just another magic trick, they, you think you're getting more jam from the same uh, pot, but actually they've turned over the double-ended jam jar, and you're getting the opposite jam. So then you, you say, I like raspberry, then you get, get some strawberry, and now you have to explain why you like it. Again, the same story, people rarely notice, and they will give you a lovely explanation for why this strawberry is delightful, but it's not the one they actually preferred. Uh, it doesn't work without limits. Um, if you switch strawberry for grapefruit, people will immediately notice that, uh, but within a fairly wide range of uh, flavours, people are totally oblivious. And it similarly works for political opinions too. Um, it works for moral dilemmas. You ask people a moral dilemma, or indeed a sequence, which would you choose, A or B? Um, and then you, on a small number of trials, you say, well, you, you, why did you choose this? And people didn't choose this. Then they will then give a good explanation for why they chose the thing they didn't choose. So this is all telling us that we're rationalizers. We're, we're people who are, but, but the brain is able to justify itself and explain itself. But it doesn't do so by looking at the history of what actually went on inside it. It doesn't know nothing about that at all. So my explanations of my own behavior are always post hoc. They're always rationalizations. So we should imagine that the, um, uh, the, the goal of trying to find out what's my true motivation is really a mistake. Uh, I'm making up my motivations as I, as I go, to, uh, go along in my life, moment by moment. Well, I, I actually find the, the jam example fascinating because, I've, I mean, there are a couple of very interesting points that uh, took me back to one uh, project that I used to do when I was working on a, on a beer client. And what we found by getting people into a room and talking to them about what kind of beer they would normally drink and they would normally buy for their family and then following them around in supermarkets revealed that either there were, you know, kind of horrible liars because the the, the choices never matched. In, in a social environment with other people, they would usually quote uh, higher-end beer, whereas when they were around just actually shopping, you could see that they were not picking up the higher-end beer, they were actually picking up something else. And when you ask them why they picked up that beer, they, you know, they always gave very good explanations. You know, I have a big party going on. I, I'm trying to be careful with money. But I actually never thought that it would be possible to, when, when it's with things like taste. Because, I mean, you know, you, you have a taste and, you, you, you know, your taste stays the same. So I, I actually find that fascinating. But the beer example and the, 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 your mention of, <clears throat> sorry, research makes me think of, um, you know, a very obvious question, which is... Um, are we doing market research the wrong way? Is there a better way to, to do this than asking people? Yes, I think that that is a very crucial question. I think to some extent there is a better way. Um, I mean, one general strategy we ought to be using much more is looking at actual behavior in the real world. That's one thing. Um, and the things that actually shape that behavior. And of course, the rise of big data allows us to do this to some extent 
Um, but on the other hand, that's all, looking at the world from a sort of very um, very distant perspective, very, and, and, and one's just observing what is happening, one's not observing what would happen or what could happen if we made some adjustment or change. Um, and of course, it's all sort of, for example, if you're interested in understanding beer behave, buying behaviour, it's very hard to distinguish the, um, the, the, the effect of the particular individual from the range of beers that happen to be in the supermarket that day. And, and of course, things like um, whether they have a party coming up and so on. We don't know everything about people's lives and it would be very difficult to untangle if we did. But I think looking at you know, real-world behaviour is, is certainly one thing. And the other, another obvious thing to do is to think about um, experimentation. So just trying stuff out more. So we know that um, in you know, many areas on, on the web, uh, many very successful companies are continually making slight adjustments to the way uh, their systems work and testing which works and which doesn't. Um, and of course, that's hardly a new idea in the sort of uh, advertising and marketing universe, but I think that often is, um, is, is very important. But I think also we should be thinking about much more open-ended and creative ways of exploring not what people currently think, but what, they, what kind of natural narratives come to them. Um, and this is not you know, a million miles away from, again, things that people have been doing uh, for, for a long time. But I think it's important to, to do this on a sort of a, in a systematic way and on perhaps quite a large scale. Um, so if you're thinking about um, you know, beers or coffees or things which people you know, buy a lot of and have, appear to have strong opinions about, I think, in fact, they're unbelievably flexible and it's, it's, it's possible to, um, to, to, to help people create narratives of all different types about whether they want to have you know, beers which are, are light or beers which are, um, are uh, based on particular, particular kinds of history or beers which reflect a particular national characteristic or tradition or whatever it may be. And you know, we can come to think of all, all sorts of different things as, as really the, what, what a beer is all about. Uh, or what the coffee is what the coffee is all about, and I think that. But but of course, just doing sort of qualitative analysis on a micro scale is, it's it's not enough. I mean, we need to be able to do that on a much much more larger systematic scale. And I think that's a very interesting question: how we uh, sort of explore the creative possibilities of 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 human behaviour, but in a, in a way that's um, rich enough to be useful. Because I think you have to you have to have a rich rich understanding to be able to really. Um, can think carefully about how you're going to develop um, advertising, how you're going to develop a brand, rather than just a kind of very simple sort of statistical blockbuster data, data analysis approach. But also it needs to be robust and, and systematic. You don't want to get the qualitative intuitions of one person who happens to be very different from all the other people. And this is a challenge. I think it's a challenge for, a challenge for the industry. It's a challenge for psychology as a field. Uh, but I think we do have, you know, we do have some tools to, to start engaging with those questions. But I do think experimentation, but not shying away from the richness of understanding. Um, these, these are very important things. Um, and speaking of that, one of the things that there, a lot of research goes into is how people perceive value and how people um, understand the kind of value exchange that comes with, with buying a product. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I know that you've been doing a bit of work in, in that field. And I begin to, to kind of hear from you what it is that you've, you've been finding when, when we talk about value perception and how people assess what a, a true value exchange is. Yes, that's something I've looked at a lot. So I think the, the headline story is that people's absolute conception of value is extremely unstable. 
and people have really no idea, uh, and none of us have it, ever are going to have any idea how much we value um, in, things on any kind of absolute grand scale. Um, so when I think about how much I value something like um, a house versus a car versus an iPhone versus a co- my coffee drinking experience, these things are things that I have no real way of, of, of putting on the same scale. There's no absolute sense in which I can um, uh, comp- compare these. And that's weird because if you think about the problem of having a finite amount of money and having to distribute it across these different categories, then clearly I somehow have to solve the problem of thinking, well, how do I, how do I apportion my money to, the, to, to coffee and houses and cars and, and coffee, uh, sorry, coffee, coffee, houses, cars, whatever. Um, but that means that um, in practice, we're going to distribute our money in ways that are extremely variable, both from time to time and across populations. So you know, there's no sense in which there's, there's a kind of fixed, fixed set of stable values that, that drive us. These things are, are pushed around all over the place. Now, what actually is going on, I think, is that people's sense of value is very much driven in a relative way. So whether I, how much value I get from having a you know, slightly larger living room to take something kind of ridiculously trivial in a way, but, but the kind of thing people implicitly pay huge amounts of money for, um, what counts as a slightly larger room, living room will depend on the typical size of living room that you have encountered. So if you're living in a place where living rooms are big, then you know, a, a large living room might seem you know, no particular interest. If you're living in a world where um, space is very constrained. Uh, the same size living room might seem absolutely fantastic, and it's just life-changingly wonderful. Um, and s- similarly, in a world in which, um, for example, the, the the very very high-end wines are extremely expensive and rare, then you may be willing to pay a great deal of money for them. In a slightly different world in which they're completely normal, imagine a world in which you know, top-quality wines were were ubiquitous. Um, then maybe people would be uh, you know, think they were not at all interesting, not worth paying much money for. Um, there's no, there's no absolute sense that um, uh, the, the value of the taste of a wine versus the value of a little bit more room in your house versus the, you know, the value of a slightly more uh, comfortable ride in your car. These are things that we just have no absolute conception of. They're all always relative. Um, and that, I think, is, is, is true both within a person. So you know, my perception of do I enjoy this coffee is very much driven by well, how, what is it like compared to other coffees I've had recently? And what, what is it like compared to other drinks I drink? And even then, we're, our comparisons are absolutely terrible. Um, so we roughly, roughly, for any given good, we roughly have five bins. There's essentially a very good, good, medium, bad and terrible. And that's all we have. So all I can say is, well, this coffee is pretty good compared to coffees I normally drink, or very good or terrible, um, but it's not more fine-grained than that. So the idea that we're sort of tremendously sort of subtle connoisseurs of, of our experiences is a complete illusion. Um, and of course, all of these things mean that the amount of money we're willing to pay for things is not really determined by their absolute value at all. It's determined by these very, very unstable relative values. So if I've just experienced... Um, uh, some some very um, poor examples of something I may then be willing to value very highly a medium um, and I may think it's wonderful because it's better than the the other other cases conversely if I've uh, experienced some good examples then a medium example might seem absolutely terrible and I'm not going to pay any money for it at all just our, our, our sort of conception of value is just incredibly unstable um, and I think actually also it's worth pointing out that most of the things that probably matter most to us and this is a you know, familiar observation of common sense are actually not in the market at all. And most of the things that really drive human well-being are things about 
the kinds of activities we engage in, the people we engage them with, the sense of having a meaningful life, having t- tasks and um, uh, tasks uh, we value, working with people we value. These are the things that really make make or break whether or not you uh, have a, a positive life experience. And they're not very connected at all to value, which is of, of market goods. So, it, so there is, as, as I'm sure um, your listeners will know, pretty small, a very pretty small connection between income and uh, measures of well-being, both within countries and across countries. There's some connection, but it's pretty loose. Um, and I think that you know the the quality, as it were, of the the experiences we have um, when you're thinking in the commercials context is actually pretty irrelevant. And, and again, the relativity of value is one reason why that's true. Um, so if I'm li- used, if I'm extremely wealthy and I live in luxury, then the amount, the degree to which I feel um, uh, that that my life um, is surrounded by luxury is 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 immediately diminished um, once I get used to it, because the amount of luxury I have is just kind of average for me. And someone who lives a much less luxurious lifestyle, their sense of luxury is about is 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 pretty much the same as mine, because all we're either of us are thinking is, well, things are about normal. This is you know the normal amount of um, you know, the, the normal quality of wine, the normal amount of space, the normal um, degree of comfort in a car. It's just this is this is just the normal thing, and whatever we actually have, whatever the norm, normal is for us, um, that you know, soon becomes the baseline. Um, so I think there is there, this, this relates to these kind of very old ideas of the such as the hedonic treadmill, the idea that thinking that um, human motivation is uh, driving us forward to. Um, Get get it better experiences and better goods and services, and that will make us happier. Is a fundamental mistake because all we do is become used to a different set of options, and because all our judgments are relative, overall we don't feel much different. I I mean I feel <laughs> I feel bad to pull this back into a very kind of commercial space of marketing and advertising, but in our industry we do we do focus a lot on what we call reframing strategies where you try to put, as, as you kind of very aptly explained, you try to put something in a different context so that you can reshape the understanding of how that is valuable outside of its present context. Um, and examples of that would be when you compare something across different categories, you say, you know, this is as big as, I don't know, 25 of those. Or, you know, if you save this much, it's the equivalent of this much. And, um, and they seem to work. But what do you think? Do you think these kinds of, you know, kind of very, uh, marketing-driven strategies to reframe value. Do they do they have an impact? Oh yes, I think they do have an impact. And in fact, because of the fact that our judgments of value are very unstable and really not um, grounded absolutely at all, I think this is one reason that they that they are potentially powerful. Because what we're doing is helping a, a sort of unstable and confused mind to think. Well, I don't really know if this is big or small or good or bad. But I guess if I compare it to this thing which is the thing that the, in this case, the marketing department has um, decided is the right comparison, um, then, you know, it's, then, then, I, then it looks good. It looks, it looks positive. And a, a sort of a more um, uh, general example is, is, is the example of, of a new product which um, can be viewed as belonging to one or another category and which category you refer it back to is critical to its success. And I think one of my favourite examples, a very obvious one, is um, online um, newspapers behind a paywall. So if you're a newspaper behind a paywall, what you want people to do is to think, wow, this is so much cheaper than a physical newspaper. And it's so much better and so much more convenient. Um, so as long as you think 
the, the Times Online is a bit like the Times, um, but it's but it's something that you don't have to go and buy from a newspaper shop, and it's it's, it's better value, and so on and so on. Then it seems like a fantastic value product. But obviously, if you if you compare it to the Guardian, which is free, um, then you think, oh no, it's an on it's, it's an online or indeed the BBC website, it's an online news provider, and I, I've, there are other online news providers, and they're free. So suddenly it looks like very bad value. Um, so there's very, what, what one can't do, indeed, is to rely on the, uh, sort of people's intuitive sense of how much pleasure or value am I getting from this experience? Am I willing to pay this much for it? It's very, very relative. Um, so, I mean, I think, so, so these, these things are absolutely crucial. I mean, for example, if you're Netflix... Then you know, the subscription. If if you compare, you what you want people to do is to compare Netflix to you know, going to the cinema, um, say, where their Netflix subscription for the month might well be much less than one family trip to the cinema. Um, but what you don't want them to do is to compare it to you know, free TV. We've covered a lot, a lot of ground, and I have um, two last questions. One, which is obviously very self-serving at the end, but we, um, I always feel the need to ask it. But the first one would be, if there's one thing that you found in your recent work where you went, whoa, I did not expect that, what, what would that thing be? Uh, I think the, 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 the biggest thing, I think, or the most surprising single thing that we've been working on recently comes from actually some work in the, the 90s by Eldar Shafia at Princeton, and we've been replicating that and extending it. And I won't go into the details of how we've done that, um, but they're showing that the effects are very, very robust, very, very stable. And so what Eldar um, did was he, he discovered that if you give people two options, uh, propositions of any kind, and one proposition has some good features and some bad features, and the other proposition is just kind of medium. So we'll call the first one the extreme proposition and the second one the boring proposition so these might be holidays they might be parents who are going to be awarded custody they might be anything they might be products and we ask people um, which of these would you prefer now if you would do that mostly um, about two-thirds of the time people will say i think i prefer the extreme thing please fine nothing special exciting there but here's the shocker suppose you ask people you say to people, you can't have both of these. You've got to reject one of them, but you can then have the other. Which are you going to reject? And now people reject the extreme option with a probability of roughly two-thirds. So if you ask people to which would they like, they choose the extreme thing. And if you ask which people dislike, they also choose the extreme thing. And that seems completely crazy. So that So what's going on there? So I think what that's telling us is something very deep, and it goes back to this point about rationalisation. If I ask you to choose something, what that's making you think is, oh, I've got to find an explanation, a rationalization, a justification for why something is good. And then I think, oh, well, the extreme thing has some extremely good things about it. Oh, that's that. I'll choose that then, because I focus on the good things. The, the, the boring thing doesn't have any good or bad features, really. It's just boring. But if, on the other hand, I ask you to reject something, you think, oh, I've got to find an explanation, a justification a rationalization for why something is bad. Oh, the extreme thing has this bad feature. Look, it's really bad in this way. Um, therefore, I'm going to reject it. And that's really shocking. So I think, first of all, it's shocking if you think that there's any such thing as a deep underlying preference lurking inside your mind, because the very, uh, the very choice of the question, accept or reject, you're asking the same thing in a slightly different way. That flips the behavior. So you're, there can't be any underlying true preference that you're trying to tap into. 
But also from the point of view of the sort of marketing and advertising world, it suggests that very subtle ways of shaping the purchase decision can really drastically affect which purchase you end up with. That's actually fascinating. That uh, it, you know boggles the mind. It, it really does. I was I was sorry. I was standing back here and thinking, gosh, how how do you work when when people are so unpredictable and it's it's actually happening in in the moment and there's there's really no background, no context for for why decisions are made. Um, I'm gonna have to uh, mull on that a bit a bit more. One last question for me: If you could give us people in the advertising industry one piece of advice what would that be i think that would be not to trust your intuitions uh, we all we're all making up our intuitions moment by moment people in the industry probably have richer intuitions than every uh, than other people but they shouldn't be trusted anymore so one very interesting general pattern of uh, experience from looking at expertise for example, in medical doctors looking at um, uh, scans and trying to work out who has, has or hasn't got cancer, is that when people are very experienced doctors, they get very good at providing very good explanations for why their interpretation of a particular scan is what it is. But they don't actually get any better at predicting. So the people who come right out of medical school and the consultants of 30 years are pretty much exactly the same in uh, working out from a scan who's got what, but the ones who've been in the job for a long time are really good explainers and they're very confident. So I think we, we, all of us, whatever profession we have, if we have lots of experience, we tend to trust our intuitions way too much and we shouldn't. Brilliant. Thank you so much, um, Nick, for being on the podcast. It was lovely having you on and hopefully we'll see you back at an APG event soon. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Okay, that was Nick Chater speaking about how our decisions might be a bit more irrational than we think. There's three things that stood out for me on this one. One, that people are harder to predict than we think, and much of what we think we know for sure about consumers might be our own rationalizations. Two, that market research needs to span a wide range of techniques, from ethnography to qual and quant, and big data, to provide reliable insight. And finally, that we should really not trust our own intuitions when doing our jobs as planners. I hope that was useful. Stay tuned for more. Bye for now.